you turn with me to Philippians 1, 3 to 5, there are Bibles at the back if you would like to use one of those. Um, we'll read verses 3 to 5 in a few moments. We began our afternoon study of Philippians last Lord's Day and we noticed at some by way of introduction some of the great themes in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And beginning in verse 6, Paul emphasises the sovereignty of God in salvation. And the book of Philippians, we saw, shows a man with a vibrant faith in difficult circumstance. He's in prison. But while he's in prison, he's radiating a contagious joy. And how we need that ourselves in our own time. Philippians is a letter that beckons us to that fight for joy, no matter what our situation is today. Philippians commends to us our Sovereign Saviour's holy humility, especially in that Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And it not only says, and it not only says that by that means did Christ redeem us, but it says that we are to follow in the wake of Christ's example. So Philippians therefore calls us to grow in humility. And we also said that Philippians displays a saint on whom the world has lost its grip. As we said, you can almost hear the Apostle Paul singing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. As he says, I count all things lost for the sake of Christ, Philippians 3. And we also said that this letter displays for believers who are under the crushing load of life, in the darkest moments of their experience, even in the valley of the shadow of death. It displays for believers an incomprehensible peace. So the letter to the Philippians invites us not only to long to know Christ and him crucified, but to know the peace that surpasses all understanding, even when life is most difficult. So this is a letter, I to remember three things of love and of joy and of truth. And what I mean by love is that it's a, in the sense that Paul's love for the Philippians is undiluted in his expression in this letter. When he writes to the Corinthians, I think I may have said last week, but you know that he loves them. But he wants to give them a jolly good shaking as well for the way that they are acting. And that comes through in, in the letter to the Corinthians. He loves the Galatians. We, we, we've looked at Galatians in the afternoon when he's writing them. But he wants to give them a jolly good shaking too because they followed those false teachers, what they went off and believed. Instead of the pure gospel that he, Paul, preached in the first place. But Philippians is written to his beloved congregation, his precious church. He'd only been there a short period of time, but his love for the church comes through in this letter. What do I mean by joy, that it's a letter of joy? Well, I just mentioned it earlier and last week, but he's in the slammer, he's in prison, but he's filled with joy. He's filled with joy, 20 times or more in a three-page letter. Paul uses words that express or exhort 
the Philippians to joy and truth. What do I mean by truth? Well, it's a letter of truth. Philippians, we looked at last week, all the truth that it contains. It contains Paul's most profound explanation of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Philippians is unparalleled in the writings of Paul in terms of his depiction of the humiliation and the exaltation of our Lord. So even in this small three-page letter, a letter of love, joy, truth, you find this profound expression of truth about Jesus Christ. Last Lord's Day we began this book and spent a few minutes looking at the greeting and the salutation. Who wrote it, who received it, and the opening words of greeting, the grace greeting. And the greetings that Paul gives in verse 1 and 2 are so rich. We looked at how Paul and Timothy described themselves as bond slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul may have been physically imprisoned by Caesar, but Caesar was not his Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ was Paul's Lord, and he was only there in prison because the Lord Jesus wanted him there. And we said last week that if we started looking at our lives like that, that's quite dangerous. So watch out, because it's a life-transforming way of looking at life, believing in God's sovereignty over everything in life. The Apostle Paul was the last man in the world who wanted to be caged up under house arrest or in a prison. But he accepted it, knowing that he was not in the final analysis the bond slave of Caesar or the prisoner of Caesar, but he was the permanent servant, the doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we looked at the senders, we looked at the recipients, the Philippians themselves, and then Paul's greetings to those who are leaders in the congregation. And we looked at the content of the greeting and the beautiful benediction that is contained in it, where Paul pronounces grace and peace, calling attention to the mercy of God that saves them from their sins. Now we could look at verses 3 to 6 together, because it is one thought. And in verses 5 and 6, Paul is telling you what the foremost reasons in his heart and mind are that begin to well up in him those thoughts of thanksgiving and rejoicing when he thinks about the Philippians. But I'm going to look at verses 3 to 5 today, come back to verse 6 next time because it is so rich, and we'll spend some time on verse 6. So we'll look at verses 3 to 5. Please look out for three things. Verse 3, Paul's thankful heart, because I believe Paul's thankful heart has a lot to teach us. Verse 4, Paul's joyful prayer, Paul's joyful prayer has a lot to teach us. And verse 5, Paul's gospel focus, because he is going to tell us what it, he has in view that makes him so thankful and joyful about the Philippians. Let's pray as we read God's word together. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the privilege of having your revelation, your plan of salvation, your promises in our hands. And Holy Spirit, do give me the words to speak well of Jesus, in whose precious name I pray. Amen. So Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So it's not surprising, given the introduction, when you move into the body of the letter, the first thing you're confronted with is thanksgiving and joy. It's not surprising in light of the overview and in light of the fact that we've just seen Paul is rooted with joy throughout the letter. So the first note is thanksgiving and joy. And in particular, Paul is telling the Philippians of the thanksgiving he has in his heart for them. The joy he experiences when praying for them. And the, at the sheer delight that floods his heart when he thinks about their unity, their fellowship, their cooperation, their partnership with him in the gospel. So they're the three things I want to look with you very briefly this afternoon. First of all, Paul's thankful heart. If you look at verse 3, that's where we see the reference to Paul's thankful heart. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In other words, Paul is saying that when he recalls the love of the Philippians, when he recalls the support of the Philippians, when he remembers the Philippians, it causes him to give thanks to God. The Apostle Paul had a special relationship with the Philippian church. He seems to be on the same wavelength, singing from the same hymn sheet with the church in Philippi. So his fellowship with them is sweet. And when he thinks about them, when he thinks about the work of the gospel in them, when he thinks about their partnership, their participation with him in the work of the gospel, it leads him to thanksgiving. For Paul, blessings received from God lead to thanksgiving to God. I often think about this, and I've often mentioned it, how many times do we pause to give thanks to God for answered prayer? We certainly ask God for a lot. How often do we pause to give thanks when he comes through for us? Now I want to ask you a question about Paul's specific point. Is this the way for you? Do God's blessings to you, especially gospel blessings, lead you immediately and instinctively to thanksgiving to God? Are you a thankful person? Are you a person with worn out kneecaps because you've been on your knees giving thanks to God? Or are we a thankless people? The Apostle Paul models for us thanksgiving and an act of thanksgiving. Every blessing that comes to Paul, he does not take for granted. He does not feel entitled to receive that blessing. He doesn't approach the blessing as if he deserved it. Yes, the Lord did that for me. That's his job after all. No, for Paul, the blessings received overflow in thanksgiving. And I want to say to you, my friends, that that kind of thanksgiving needs to characterise our prayer life and our attitude when no one else can see us. It's one thing, it's one thing to be here and look really smart and really, really switched on, as the case may be, but does thanksgiving 
characterised our prayer life when no one is watching? Is it our practice in prayer to spend much time in thanksgiving? If it is not, let me ask you a question. What does that say about us? If the only prayer you ever pray is dominated by the rehearsal of needs and requests, as appropriate as it is to give our needs and requests to God, if our prayer life is only dominated by requests, and if thanksgiving is non-existent, what does that say about us? Well, it may say we haven't spent adequate time reflecting on the greatness of God's blessing, and thus we're not thankful for them. Or may I say worse, we're not thankful people, but entitled people. We're complacent. We feel entitled to those gifts that God gives us. And consequently, we're not thankful and we don't spend time giving thanks to God. And here, the Apostle Paul is spurred on by the work of God's grace to the Philippians to do what? To immediately turn around and give thanks to God. So what is happening in the Philippians' lives isn't ultimately due to Paul's strategy or even to the efforts of Paul. It's ultimately due to God's grace, the grace of God. So Paul, so God is deserving of all the praise. And Paul turns immediately around and gives thanks to God. Is that the way it is for you? Is that the way it is for us? Are we thankful in our prayers and in our heart attitudes? Or do we feel entitled to the blessings that God gives us? Or are we ungrateful for the greatness of God's gospel mercies to us? Paul's thankful heart urges us to be thankful in prayer and in attitude. The second thing I want you to see is in verse 4, Paul's joyful prayer. Paul's thankful heart, verse 3. Paul's joyful prayer, verse 4. Look again at verse 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, that's verse 3. It was easy for Paul to think of the Philippians and to thank God for them. He had a special bond with this fellowship. So it was easy for him to think about them and immediately thank God. But then he goes on to say in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy. So it was easy for Paul to think of the Philippians than to pray for them. But not only that, Paul characterises his prayer for them as joyful. The work of prayer that he was engaged in on their behalf was sheer delight to him. That's what it means. It was a joy to pray for the Philippians. Now I think there's a couple of takeaways couple of things that we can learn from that. One is that we ourselves should be thankful and joyful in our prayers for others. That's, that, that's quite a straightforward takeaway. But the second thing is this. Do we make it easy for others to be thankful and joyful for us? Do we make it easy for others to be thankful and joyful in their prayers for us in the way that it was easy for Paul to be thankful and joyful in his prayers for the Philippians. Are we making it easy for one another 
to think of us and to thank God. You ever thought of it like that? Do you make it easy? Do you make it easy? Don't point the finger to someone else. No, take this to yourself. Do you make it easy for someone else to think of you and to thank God for you? And to be joyful when they get on their knees to labour in prayer, to do business with God in prayer on our behalf? Do we make it easy for them to do so? I have some friends, some dear precious friends that God has given me in this life that I learn from and I'm nourished in their company. So often, having spent time with them, I find myself reflecting on how much I get from them and how it leave, it's sort of like, it's like a battery supercharge when I come out. And it, but then how relatively little I give to them. And that prompted me to think when studying this week, you know, since I'm going to be with so-and-so today, and since I am so blessed by what this person says encouraging to me, and I learn something from it, or where this person's heart is, what he's thinking about, what he's investing himself in. Or I'm so blessed by what this person is doing and learning from this person, that I'd better get something ready to take with me to try and bless this person because I'm getting the better end of the deal here and my friend is getting the short end of the stick. I mean, just the very way that they make it easy for me to thank God for them. And it makes it easy for me to be joyful when I'm praying for them because of what a blessing they are to me. So it's not difficult for me to imagine if they're a blessing to me, then they're a blessing to others as well. So it makes it fun for me to pray for them. And I mean that. It makes it fun for me to pray for them. It makes it a delight for me to pray for them. It makes it easy for me to thank God for them. It's an easy thing to do. It's an instinctive thing to do, to fall on my knees and to give thanks. So are you that kind of person? who makes it easy for others to thank God for you and to be joyful in you in their prayers. I think that ought to be an aim, actually. I think, that, I think that should be before us. I think there should be an aspiration on the part of us individually and collectively that we would be known as an encouraging people, that we in this fellowship would be encouragers, not people who bring people down. Gospel-focused, grace-filled, mutually supportive, so much so that others find it joyful and delightful to engage in prayer for us with thanksgiving. That has to be what Paul means. So apply it individually and apply it together but don't be pointing the finger at someone else. Apply it to your own heart. And the Apostle Paul's joyful prayer for the Philippians reminds me of that. The third thing I want you to see as well is Paul's gospel focus in Philippians 1 and verse 5. He begins in verse 5 to tell you two specific things which caused the Apostle Paul 
to pause and give thanks for the Philippians. He tells us the second thing in verse 6. The first thing he tells us in verse 5. We'll come back to verse 6 next time. But verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some translations say in view of your fellowship in the gospel, which is a perfectly good translation as well. It's the same word koinonia. And you must have come across that word koinonia in the Greek. It, it's the word that we use for fellowship. It's elsewhere, it's used in the New Testament, koinonia, which is tra translated fellowship in English. So the Apostle Paul is saying that it is the fellowship, the shared life that he enjoyed with the Philippians, the participation, the partnership, the mutual cooperation, the mutual involvement that he and the Philippians had in what? In the work of the gospel. That made Paul joyful. It was, it was his mutual fellowship and enjoyment and partnership with them in the work of the gospel that made him joyful and thankful and happy when he thought of them. If you remember Acts 16, remind yourselves of the kind of people who were in the Philippian church. Remind yourselves of the kind of people who would have been in this fellowship that Paul found so much joy and delight in. And the kind of context in which the Lord God saved them. First of all, you have this vision. And I've always thought it interesting that God gave Paul the vision of a man calling him over to Macedonia. And when he showed up, when the Apostle Paul showed up in Philippi, who was at the riverside? Who were the first people who met him? All women. The core group in Philippi were the women. The core group for the church in Philippi, and what a core group it was. There was Lydia, the seller of purple. And I remember when I preached through Acts 16, the seller of purple. Purple is a very, very, very expensive commodity. She would have definitely been a higher class businesswoman, accomplished. But she was pagan as the day is long. So what does Luke specifically want to emphasise to us? That the Lord opened her heart to believe, remember? The Lord opened her heart to believe. What is, what it, what is Luke's point? What is Luke's point? The sovereign grace of God breaking in to this very accomplished, very competent, but pagan and lost businesswoman and saving her, drawing her effectually to Jesus Christ so that she rests and trusts alone in him for salvation. So what's Luke emphasising? That God's at work. Well, what was the next thing that happened? First of all, you've got this, you know, if you like, middle class, middle to high class businesswoman, very accomplished, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She's a fortune teller. You ask the questions and she came out with stuff. And she's bugging the Apostle Paul, if you remember. And at one point he just says, get out of her. 
and goes on. I like to think she would have been in the congregation. I do not know, I hope and I wonder. And then the Philippian jailer. And after Paul had been treated so badly and had been jailed and is waiting for who knows what <laughs> from the local officials, there was this extraordinary miraculous event and Paul could have walked away scot-free. He had the opportunity to just get out of there. And the Philippian jailer is getting ready to kill himself because he will be blamed for the loss of prisoners. And suddenly, what's there? The Apostle Paul, singing, then shares the gospel with him. And suddenly the Philippian jailer, just like Lydia, the Philippian jailer and his family are coming and they would have been part of this church. We forget that when we write this letter to the Philippians. That these are the people who would have been sitting in the pews. And in each of the stories, in each of the individual cases, see how the sovereign power of God who saves is emphasised. And so the Apostle Paul then seems to be saying to the Philippians, you know, you get me. You understand me. You understand when I say that I was a Christian-hating Pharisee and I was bent on wiping Christianity off the face of the earth on the way to Damascus and the risen Lord Jesus met me and saved me. You get that. You understand that because the sovereign grace of God was displayed in your conversions in exactly the same way. We understand one another. What a beautiful thing. What was the bond? It was the sovereign grace of God that had broken into them and saved them. The Apostle Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the son of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, educated as best as any Pharisee could ever have been educated. He'd have been legalistic to the legalistic team. You might have enjoyed being around him. But he was a Jew of Jews, faithful to the whole of the law, saying, you know, you Macedonian, pagan, Gentile, Philippians, non-Christians, now Christians, I mean, you get me. It was just as miraculous for him as it was for them. You understand me. And we have koinonia, in the gospel. The koinonia, the fellowship, was in the gospel. You understand the grace of God. You understand the sovereignty of God. Why? Because it happened in your heart. Have you ever been in a room and there are people there who, because of certain sometimes traumatic shared experiences, they just understand one another, they know how to talk to one another? I've experienced that a little bit with having had cancer, you can relate to people who have cancer or going through cancer in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before. But sometimes you can be in, you know, in a room and people are there with certain traumatic shared experiences and they just know how to relate. Sometimes they can understand each other without saying a word. And you're kind of thinking, I just don't understand how these people know or have a bond with each other. There's a bond and an understanding and a koinonia. 
that I cannot enter into. You may be in a room and there are in that room godly women who've lost children at a young age. I've, been, I've, seen, I've seen that. Terribly tragic. By God's grace they've been brought through that trial. But they understand one another and what they've experienced and the loss that they have experienced that I have no clue about. And oftentimes these experiences, these experiences, these shared experiences, they do what? They create a bond of koinonia. When there's a mutual understanding, where sometimes you do not even have to say things or even understand them. There's just that shared bond. So the Apostle Paul is saying, Philippians, it is like that with me and you. And our koinonia is in the gospel. The thing that joins us, the thing that makes us get one another, is the gospel. And the beautiful thing about that, it is Paul, the Jew of Jews, saying that to Gentile Philippians. We miss that. We miss that. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's saying that we've got this beautiful bond. We've got this unbreakable bond to the most Gentile of Gentiles. We have a fellowship in the gospel of grace because we've all experienced the grace of the gospel. If you understand grace, if you've been saved by grace, you will express it, I promise you. Somebody who has been saved by amazing grace cannot, doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter all the good words about it, doesn't matter. They express that grace, that connection, which you cannot fail to connect to. And sometimes one of the reasons that you know somebody hasn't got it is because they can't express grace. But if we've been so captivated by the grace of God, it will, it must, it always does come out of us. So it's important for us to understand because the fellowship the Apostle Paul has with the Philippians isn't based on natural background affinity. It's not that kind of community, not that kind of fellowship the Apostle Paul is talking about experiencing with the Philippians. He's talking about gospel fellowship, gospel koinonia. From the standpoint of natural affinity, Paul had none of that with the Philippians. They didn't go to the same school. They wouldn't have even eaten at the same table. They were Gentiles, he was a Jew. They didn't go to the same university. They didn't grow up going to the same church. Why? They were worshipping the polytheistic pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. And he was worshipping the God of Israel in a synagogue. They had from the standpoint of natural affinity, nothing in common. But boy, they had this, the gospel. They had this, grace. And they had this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is saying, it gives me joy to think of the fellowship in the gospel we share together. It's a fellowship of faith. They believe in the same Lord Jesus and they believe the same Bible. They believe the same gospel message and it knit them together over against the world around them. He was a Jewish believer, they were Gentile believers, but they believed in the same Lord Jesus Christ, the same gospel, the same Bible, over and against their non-believing Jewish and non-believing Gentile contemporaries. 
Whatever affinities they had with them, they were close to one another because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had in common love for one another. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians that these Macedonian believers were poorer than the Corinthians. The Corinthians were financially better off than the Philippians. But who does Paul give as an example for Christian giving the Macedonians? Out of their own needs, out of their own poverty, they gave. So Paul will point to the Corinthians who have more and say you need to give like the Philippians. So over and over throughout Paul's ministry, he's receiving practical support, but much more, if you like, important spiritual encouragement from the Philippian church. And he senses a fellowship. And even though they lack, they're given in their lack because they're committed to the same thing that Paul is committed to, the glory of Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. And they had a mutual gospel partnership in the gospel. The Apostle Paul wants every knee to bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And the Philippians want to see the earth as full of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as the waters cover the sea. So the Apostle Paul with them can share in the partnership of the gospel. So when Paul thinks about the Philippians, he thinks about the koinonia they have in the gospel and in the spread of the gospel. Is that our kind of fellowship? Do we have gospel fellowship? Is our gospel fellowship and the things that knit us together as believers more significant than the human natural things that join us together? It's the fact that we share in common Jesus Christ, the gospel, faith in him, the amazing grace of God. Are those the things that are our deepest inner core and give us the sense that I am your brother and you are my brother, you are my sister? Is that the thing that knits us together? That's gospel fellowship. And it should be one of our aims to cultivate that gospel fellowship. If fellowship is primarily based on likes and dislikes, common affinities, if they are the things that fundamentally join us together, then what is interesting at the edges of our congregations will be walls. And anyone who can't join those natural kind of groupings will not be a part of us. But if our fellowship is in the things that are related to the gospel, then the edges of our fellowship will be porous. And even people not like us, not from our socioeconomic class, not from our racial background, not from our hometown, they're not part of the same set of friends or colleges or colleagues that we have participation in. But the thing that joins us is that they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll very easily become together part of the gospel fellowship because the thing that fundamentally unites us is not natural human affinities, but gospel partnership. The Apostle Paul shows us a thankful heart, a joyful prayer and a gospel focus. He calls us to joy and rejoicing in one another and being the kind of people that make it easy for others to rejoice in us. He calls us to cultivate a gospel-oriented 
fellowship together. May the Lord grant that for us, for his glory and our eternal good. Amen.